It's so good to see you all. It really is. And be praying with all of you. And it's good to be part of a family that uh, loves God. And we're going to stay the course. Stay the course till he comes. Go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We've come as far as uh, verse 9. As Paul was talking about with us, for us, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, um, a question that began in the church, hey, what happens, you know, these many of the Christians, they wanted a righteousness, a zealousness, and they said, you know what we'll do? We'll practice celibacy within marriage, and Pastor Paul's like, wait a minute, that's not biblical. What are you doing, you know? We talked a little bit about that, and and uh, he said, you know, in verse 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. He had said that it wasn't wrong for those that are single to desire singleness and celibacy because it's a gift from God. Verse 7, I don't know if that was, everybody was here last week, but you think about that. If you're single and you're, or you're a widow and you're content in that, do you know where that contentment comes from? It comes from God. It's not of yourself. It's from the Lord. And if you're married or you have a desire to be married, do you know where that comes from? That's a gift from God too. A gift of God to desire marriage like that. That's what we read right in verse 7, right? He says his own gift from God. Well, so Paul's going to continue on that as he goes through. And now he's going to exhort uh, believers. And he's going to even speak what happens if someone is unevenly yoked, but specifically believers, what they're to do within a marriage, how, what a biblical marriage ought to look like according to scripture. And, um, we're going to pick up there. Let's, let's bow our heads and then we'll, we'll begin. Father, we certainly want to honor you with uh, your word and the, the understanding of your word. God, we pray, we pray that you'd make this very uh, plain and simple for our ears and our eyes to see here this morning. God, we, we pray for context so that we understand exactly what was on the heart of the church in Corinth and that we too as a church today, a few thousand years later, God, can come alongside and allow your spirit to teach us and equip us for the days that we're living. For Lord, we do believe and know that we are too living in the last days. And God, we want to walk according to your spirit, walk according to your truth. And Lord, we want to be a lover of your commandments and statutes. So Jesus, I pray you have your way with us here this morning. In the heart of every believer, allow them to set everything aside to hear the good news of our shepherd, our Lord, you, Jesus Christ. We pray this in your holy name, Jesus, and all God's people prayed. Amen, amen, all right. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, by the way, and one of our ushers will bring you a Bible if you need a Bible here this morning. So he picks up in verse 10, he says, Now to the married... I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. We have no biblical context for divorce other than one thing. And what is that? That's adultery, sexual morality through adultery. Now, what we learn in this passage, Lord, is there, there is a, an idea of separation for a time if needed. But that has to do more in the context of uh, specifically if something was going on in the believer's home, maybe somebody was engaged in, I don't know, um, abuse in the home. And so what, certainly husband and wives, if you're being abused in the home like that, you're, you're not to stay in that situation. You are to get out of harm's way and to, to separate for a time so that that other spouse, whoever's doing the abusing, can seek counseling to be, you know, to get that under control, to get that right and to behave like a Christian. And then after you behave like, what are you to do? You're to come back together through reconciliation. That's the design there, right? But he's also going to talk about something interesting. And what happens when you have a believer and unbeliever? First of all, how can that happen? What is the only way that that would be allowed in scripture? Because in Scripture, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, that we're not to be what? Unevenly yoked, right? So how is that even possible? Well, actually, it was possible in our marriage, my, my marriage with my wife. I got saved before my wife got saved. So technically, we were unevenly yoked in our marriage at that point. 
I was a believer in Christ, and I was saying, come on, Lee, let's go do, and Lisa's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, you know, what's going on here? You know, I'm glad that you've found Jesus, but, uh, you know, in some, I'm not, it doesn't matter what she said, I won't go into all the details, but the reality is, you know, there was a season and a time, it wasn't very long, praise the Lord, but it was a season where she too needed that opportunity to to receive Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. But in that moment, this exhortation of Paul was very, very important because things were not necessarily lining up in our home. We kind of were disagreed uh, for probably the first time in disagreement since we really had been married because I wanted now to raise my children like the Bible said. I wanted what was coming in on that TV screen to represent whatever the Bible talked about, which means a lot of things that we previously had watched I no longer wanted to come into that home, and I started to understand my role as a pastor of the home, and I started saying, wow, I, I need to really be on top of this. I mean, I took a lot of the DVDs and, you know, threw them out and, you know, and everything that goes with when you first get saved, and you're like, I had no idea I was, you know, in this kind of immorality and the things I was doing. I, I didn't think they were as, you know, as evil as they were, and God's word is very clear, and so uh, there, was a, there was a time for that, right? And and if, if I didn't know in the word of God, maybe I thought, well, well, gosh, am I, am I supposed to remarry? Am I supposed to marry somebody that's a Christian now? Is that, do I leave my marriage to go find a marriage with a Christian wife? Certainly that's what Paul's addressing here. And he's going to say, absolutely not. Of course not. You would stay in that marriage. And he's going to say, even, you know what? You might have end up being that witness that draws her to Jesus Christ. And I'm, I'm happy to say, praise the Lord, that's exactly what happened in our home. This scripture bared witness in our lives, in our home. It's true, 100% of the time. It's true for other people, too, where we've, I've counseled other couples where maybe one is walking with Christ and one's not walking with Christ. And they're, you know, somebody comes in and they're crying, well, will my husband or will my wife ever, and, you know, sometimes it's six, seven months, eight months like that. And God moves and the person gets saved. They get off drugs. They walk away from the pornography and, and man, they, they just are like, whoa. And I'm like, what did you expect? You're doing it God's way. You're following the word of God. What, what did you expect, right? So, so let's keep reading here. He says, but a wife is not to depart from her husband, right? But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say. So this is the first time that we've seen this in Corinthians now where Paul is going to give an exhortation that I'm going to call it spiritual common sense. What he's offering here is spiritual common sense through the Holy Spirit, but it wasn't directly given him as a command via revelation of God. Okay, so he distinguishes this, and I'm so grateful we have records of that, of Pastor Paul doing that, that he didn't say, thus saith the Lord. There's a lot of people that like to do that today. Thus saith the Lord on something, and it's not of God. It's not of God that way. It's, it's their opinion. Paul's very clear and says, no, no, this is spiritual common sense. If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. Now, again, what could be the case? I gave you the example. Two unbelievers get married. One gets saved. That's what Paul's dealing with in this church in Corinth. One gets saved. One's not saved. One, therefore, they're unequally yoked. 2 Corinthians 6.14, which is sin. But they both went in what? Originally, unsaved. They were both not believers. I will actually marry two non-believers. I will marry two believers. I will never marry a believer and an unbeliever. You understand that? That, that's scriptural. I can marry two unbelievers because are they equally yoked? Yes, they are. They're unbelievers. Do I, would I do that? Why? I remember the first time Pastor Chuck Smith was asked that question. Well, Pastor, why would you do that? And he said, because when I get the opportunity to invest in a life, he says, how are they not going to come to Jesus? If I marry them and they start coming to church and they start, he says, what do you think is going to happen? He says, they're going to come to Christ. I'm going to invest in them. Of course, they're going to come to Christ. You know, that's the prayer, right? So, you know, unbelievers, yeah, absolutely. Believers, of course, but not a believer and an unbeliever. It's very, very important because it, marriage is already complex, if I can say it that way. We don't need to add additional complexity into it. And that's kind of what, what we see here. But, but Paul's saying, look, this is just almost common sense spiritually. And, it, and, and you're not to divorce or walk away, you know, from someone uh, that's willing to stay with you. And a woman whose husband who does not believe, if he's willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. 
For the unbelieving husband is sanctified. Now, this word is beautiful. This is used in a very unique way in this passage here. It speaks of those freed from um, the contamination of heathen influences. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's how this word is used. Very unique. Sanctified. Very unique. Almost like it was in Leviticus. You remember in Leviticus how it was used? In Leviticus, it was talking about ceremony unclean and clean. That's kind of what this is describing. A ceremonial cleanness is something that will become holy, but he's going to say that they would be unclean without it. There's nothing that has sacrificed or cleansed them. We know in Christ, he has removed all of our sin. Not only have we been, that sacrifice been paid, past, present, and future, we've also received a new nature as part of it, right? So we can see the full idea of what God has done here. But he says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. He's under the influence of the Holy Spirit because of the wife, because of the more's caught than taught. You're a living epistle. Your body, your life becomes that living epistle for that opposite partner, spouse in your life, okay? He says, Otherwise, your children would be, well, you can go back, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. This, this unclean speaks in the Greek to an impurity, okay, an impurity. That's what it's saying here. It's a word better, better translated, um, and it's speaking of it more of in a, um, a ceremonial sense. Again, tying back to more kind of Leviticus in our understanding of cleanse and unclean and unclean. And then the idea of holy isn't what we think about when we typically see this word holy, where you think of holy, set apart, you know, anointed that way. That's not the way this is being used here. This is actually talking, it's so awesome. It's so awesome, the Greek. I love it. It's actually talking about being prepared for God, clean and prepared for the Lord. Now, why is this important that we're talking about this with children? Well, again, if you were with us on Wednesday, and some of you weren't, so my encouragement is come Wednesday, you need to come to midweek study because it's awesome when the Holy Spirit ties these two teachings together. Man can't do that. Man can't make me be in one passage and the, the Lord you know, orchestrates all that. We just happen to be in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And Deuteronomy chapter 4, what's one of the things that we had just left off on reading? Coincidentally, of course, right? What was one of the last things that we had just read about? We read about Moses as he was singing, you know, more or less sharing his swan song with the children, the next generation before they go into the promised land. Remember that Kadish Barnea, they're going to look over the Jordan. This is Moses' farewell, sort of farewell moment, and he looks over at them, and he begins to turn around, and he turns around, and he says, you know what? He says, I'm going to leave these things with you, because he knows he's going off the scene within a month. He's going to die and be with Jesus. So he wants to pass on everything he can, and he talks to the children, this next generation, and he says, I want you to remember. Don't forget, number one. The second thing I want you to understand is I have been faithful to give you the commandments and statutes of God. I've been faithful to do that. I want you to take those commandments and statutes and you be faithful to give them to your children. You pass them on to your children and your grandchildren. That you would remember and not make the same mistakes that our parents had made, your parents had made. You see, it's beautiful in how the, the Lord brings that out in Deuteronomy 4. And then here we are. As we kind of come in and we see this, otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they're holy. What's he saying? What he's saying is if you're a believer and you would have left that marriage, that unbeliever would have been raising the child alone and they're not going to raise that child with what? The word of God. Right? They're not going to raise that. They're not going to raise that with the word of God. So what he's saying is, believer, you stay in the marriage. And you turn around and you turn around and you raise that child with the word of God and you watch how the word of God doesn't return void in the hearts and, and what have you. That's what we see here. It's quite beautiful. And again, spoken of already in the Old Testament. So it, it's not a new concept, but what Paul's doing is he's bringing this into the church of Corinth to allow them to see that this is important. And it just reminds me of how important it is today that we need to be teaching our children. Now, I have to tell you, this is one of the things that was on my heart as we looked at starting the Christian Academy for the kids here. 
Here it is in Deuteronomy 4. Here it is in 1 Corinthians 7. I'm always a few weeks, if not months, ahead of the passage I'm reading. Right before I share it with the flock, I let the Lord work on my heart. How can you not miss this? This responsibility that we all have to pour the word of God into the children when they're young. That as they grow old, they do not depart right? Do you you see how God moves and how the Holy Spirit moves? It was not my idea to start a Christian academy. It was the Lord's motivation, the Lord's moving. And that's why I encourage you, you know, tell your friends, tell your grandchildren about it. Tell them, you know, invite them to come and be part of this because it should be a cooperation between parents, grandparents, and also an opportunity for those children to come in and be taught that every day, all the time the word of God. Because if not, we know what's going to happen. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that later as Paul kind of goes through that. I'm going to talk as we're living in these last days, what we're seeing that Jesus Christ prophesied 2,000 years ago, and we're seeing it today. And a lot of it has to do with the fact we have a biblically illiterate generation. And we just happen to have Pew Research data out recently that actually not only is it our opinion anymore, we can come back to actual data and facts that show, besides the book Ken Hammett already written, already gone from the Barna Research Group, we're losing kids by middle school. It's not high school. It's middle school kids are walking away from Jesus if they're not immersed in the word of God and they haven't allowed that Holy Spirit to come upon them and in them. That's why Paul's going to say we are in the last days. Time is short. He's going to say it in verse 29. But let's continue on here. So this is the context, just so you understand. This is why he's saying, hey, if you don't leave, don't you realize you're going to, they're going to be holy because you, they're going to be what? Prepared for God. They're going to be clean. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart, right? A brother or sister is not under bond in such cases. If you're abandoned by the unbeliever, he says, you have to let them go. You can't force them against their will, certainly. But what's important that that child that you're going to say, you're going to be what? Giving the word of God that way right? But God has called us to peace. For how do we know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And this is speaking of um, salvation by Jesus. This isn't saying that you are going to do the saving. It's certainly faith in Christ, but, but God is going to use you by you. It, it just reminds me, you know, I was talking to my wife last night. We were sitting outside and we were just, you know, we were just talking about our marriage and we were looking at the things going on in our marriage and, and we were beginning to talk about how blessed we are and, and all the different things that are going on. But at times we also looked at it and said, you know, Lord, is there an opportunity to make our marriage more like your design? Is it a marriage in light of eternity? Right? We can have marriage where we live here on this earth and our marriage is all about us and the joy and the things that we have. And, and there's nothing wrong with having joy within this life. It's really not. God allows it and God also blesses, huh? How about it? He does bless. But at the same time, is our marriage line up with the scriptural understanding of marriage? Do we form that union of one flesh where we're together bringing God the glory he deserves? That's really the idea of what a biblical marriage is. It's a marriage in light of eternity. And you might be thinking, well, pastor, haven't you read that um, we are going to be like the angels in heaven? They're not given to marriage. I'm not saying that your marriage will last in heaven. That's not what I'm talking about. What am I talking about? A marriage in light of eternity speaks of what you do on this earth today through your marriage, through your children, through your husband and wife, husband releasing their wives to serve, wives releasing their husbands to serve, to be about the God's business. Knowing that what are you building, the Bible says. You build treasures where? In heaven. That's a marriage in light of eternity. It's not about the things that are going to burn here, right? And, and, and that's what we see here. That's what this is pointing back to. So this is, this is what I look at when I look at just the beauty of marriage. But, you know, all of us, right? All of us can, can pray and ask Jesus to be more part of our marriages, Verse 17, but as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so I ordain in all the churches. Now, we're going to go through a series of passages here where Paul, at first glance without context, it's looked like he's going to say, look, wherever you get saved, that's where you're to stay. That's not 
exactly what Christ is saying here. That's not what God is saying. Uh, let me give you an example. If, you're in, if you were engaged in uh, prostitution or sex trafficking or something like that before you were saved, God is not saying stay in prostitution or sex trafficking and then witness the people in Christ in that, in that particular way. That's not what God is saying, right? God is not saying we're to stay within that evil or that wickedness uh, because that's, that's going on right now in churches. There's big movements of missionary work in churches where they're sending people in to uh, clubs where uh, women or men may dance without clothes on, and they're turning around and saying, well, they need Jesus Christ too. Absolutely. You know what? They get off work. They got cars. You know, go up and either talk to them when they get out of work, but don't in any way enter in or draw yourself into an establishment that you are, Christian, we have no business going in. And that's getting big right now. I'm telling you, reading about it, it's, it's getting big in Christian circles because they're saying, see, we need to do it. Look, you don't want to see me ever in an established like that, a mint like that. And I don't want to see you there either. You don't want to see me at a rated R film. I don't want to be going to the movies and, you, and looking over and going, hey, Susie, hey, Fred. You know, I, I don't want to see that. You don't want to see that, right? I got no business at a rated R movie, right? You know, even some of these G movies, man anymore. I'm serious. You look at the things. Go back 20 years ago. It was, I mean, nothing like this was even allowed or accepted. Even radio. It's, it's amazing. These last days, these last days. Well, so this is what, this is going to set this up in context. The other thing that's going to come up, and it's important to understand in the Hebrew or the Jewish context, just like today there's anti-Semitism, which is evil and wrong. There was anti-Semitism back then. In the first century, and slightly before that, because of the Roman influence, one of the things that was very common is when people would do business, much like in modern times, a lot of times they'll go to a golf course, right? Or they'll go out and meet at a, I don't know, a pub and have a, you know, a soda and wings or something like that. And they'll talk business, right? And they'll begin to sort of broker deals and things. Or on a golf course. I'm sure you've heard of that or it's familiar to you today. Pretty modern context. In in First century Israel, that wasn't what they did. They didn't golf, right? We, we understand. So what they did is they would go into bathhouses. Now, I want you to understand something. A Jewish man by day eight would be what? Circumcised. So he's going to talk about circumcision and uncircumcision. You might be saying, why would anybody talk about uncircumcision? Because as I mentioned, because of the anti-Semitism at that day, what would happen is that if you, as a Jew, was going into a bathhouse and you were going to meet somebody for business, you're walking into a bathhouse, you're going to clearly be able to see things. If they saw that you were Jewish, and because of the anti-Semitism, they would say, no deal, the deal's off, and they wouldn't do business with you. Basically turn you away. The Gentile or the Romans would, you know, the citizens would do that. They would have nothing to do with you. So that, that meant they couldn't buy, sell, or trade. It basically, if I, so what they did is they developed a procedure right around, I don't know, 15, well, five, 10 years after Christ was crucified. They developed a, a procedure right in that timeline to reverse a circumcision. And Jewish men would get this so that they could buy, sell, trade, conduct business, right? Clearly wrong, clearly sin, because what was it always about? Jesus said in Jeremiah, and we, we see it throughout Scripture, it was supposed to be a circumcision, but a circumcision of what? The heart. It always pointed to that. As a matter of fact, it's prophetic in Jeremiah 31, 31, that they will receive new hearts, right? Look throughout Scripture. You will always see the Spirit of God on one people group at one time. I want you to think about that. What age are we in today? We're in the church age, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, right? We haven't got to chapter 4 in the Greek, Meatato, after these things. We're still here. We haven't been raptured. You didn't miss it. I, I'm convinced that when, when the rapture happens, this parking lot's going to be empty. I'm convinced of it. So we're not going to be here, amen? So, you know, my point is, is that if you think about this in context of that, right, just, just think about it. So if the, if the Spirit of God is on the church today, What's happening in Israel? Now, as God told us to pray for Israel and, to, and Israel should be blessed, Genesis 12, right? Those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. That isn't, that isn't time expired or time expiration. That's always. But right now, the hand is upon the church. When we are raptured out of here, then God's hand and spirit will be put on what? 
Israel, the nation of Israel again. We can read that in Ezekiel chapter 38, 39, and 40 with a new temple being built. We can see that in Jeremiah 31, 31. We can read that in Zechariah. There are so many places through scripture that talk about, because you know what it says? It says they will get new hearts that they themselves won't even have to evangelize themselves the way that we do today, that they will take their plowshare or their plows and drop them right in the ditches and that they will not have to turn around and walk or evangelize that way because every brother and sister will know of the Lord. That's because God will, his spirit will come upon Israel that way, right? As a matter of fact, if his spirit didn't come upon Israel, guess what? The nations, the five of the four nations, which, oh, by the way, are are, um, believers in Islam today, Four of the five, I meant to say, uh, of nations are, are believers in Islam today. If you go back and study Ezekiel 38, those five nations, if they came against Israel and God's hand and spirit wasn't upon them, they would have been obliterated. But God tells us in his word, prophetically, he will defeat those armies. He will defeat Gog and Magog. He will be the one that does that, right? It's not Israel through their own strength. As a matter of fact, they're going to be walking around going, peace and security, peace and safety. We got this. And God's going to go, no, 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 I got this, and my spirit be upon you. Right? You see the difference? So I I just want us to think about that because it's important in in context because as we study this, we're going to see this circumcision, uncircumcision. We're going to see this talk, and it's always been about the matter of the heart. And right now, if you went over to Tel Aviv, it's as liberal as New York or Pennsylvania in a big city is. There's no difference. I mean, they have gay rights, gay pride, the whole thing going on over there, just like they do in America. It's not any different, right? Now, if you go into Jerusalem and you get around the Orthodox, things are slightly different there. But but my point is, is it's, it's not that different. People think of, oh, Israel, the spirit of God. No, they're Zionists right now. They're nationalists. But there will be a time where God's spirit will come back on them. And they will, as a nation, receive that new heart. And they will be saved. They will be saved because that's what God's word says. So that's how I know that uh, Israel's not done with in the Bible. There's a lot of, a lot of people try to use replacement theology today. Yeah, God's word's clear about that. Let, let's go into our context here now, though, that have helped to sort of set the, set the baseline for that. So verse 18, was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. And I already told you why they were doing that. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised, right? Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. That's it. Over and over again, we're going to see that through scripture. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, that's to the right. After 2 Corinthians. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. Turn to your right, two books. 2 Corinthians, Galatians. And look at chapter 5, verse 6. It says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. That's what we see there. Also, I want you to look at 1 John chapter 2. Keep going to the right. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. It's the book right before Revelation. You have 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. Go to 1 John, okay? Go to chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 3 through 5. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. As we just read, it's about the commandments and statutes of God. And this is a test that the Lord, you know, has provided through his Holy Spirit to know, how do you know? How do you know if you have him or not? He tells us right here, uh, John, 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 3 says, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him, by this we know that we are in him. I want you to look at chapter 5 in 1 John as well. Go to chapter 5. I want you to look at verse 2. Page over. 1 John chapter 5. Look at verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. 
For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Do you see that? Now, I want, I'm going to turn to John 14. You're welcome to join me. John 14. And we're going to look at this specifically from Jesus himself as he obviously inspired all of the word of God here through the Holy Spirit. But I want to read his words here for a moment. John chapter 14, verse 15. John chapter 14, verse 15. Look at this with me. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you a little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you will live also, praise him. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So here's the question. What are his commandments? Are we still under the law? No, but we're under one particular part of the law. What is that? The moral law right? We didn't see the moral law expire. We're not under the ceremonial law. We're not under the feast days. We can read that throughout scripture in Galatians and what have you, Galatians chapter three, but in Galatians chapter two, but we're under the moral law. What is the moral law? I want you to look at what the moral law is about. First, turn to Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Look what he says here. Chapter 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. Did he really want to know or what did he say? He says he was testing him and saying, teacher, which is greater, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. Now, remember, they didn't have the New Testament back then, right? They had the Old Testament. What is Jesus saying right there? What were the law and the prophets? The law and the prophets was a way of saying the entire counsel of God because the law and then the prophets were the, what came after that. So when you had the law and the prophets, you had the entire counsel of God. We today, when we read the law and the prophets, for you and I, that's all 66 books of the Bible. We have the law and the prophets. It means the entire counsel of God, okay? So what he's saying here is, according to Jesus, when you look at these commandments, Two things in particular, and it shouldn't be a surprise. One's vertical, one's horizontal. Love God with all of your what? Heart, with all of your what? Soul, and with all of your mind, right? And the second one, love your neighbor as you would yourself. Horizontal. Now, go to the Decalogue. You don't have to turn there, but just remember, the first four are what? Vertical. The Lord your God who's brought you out of Egypt, right? You shall have no other gods beside him. What? He is a jealous God. What is that focused on? The vertical, right? So we're not to worship any other God. Then we get to, you know, number five all the way through 10. You know, don't steal, don't covet, don't murder. You know, what are those focused on? The horizontal, the way we treat each other. That's the law and the prophets. That's the law we're under today, if anything. It's the law of love. It's the law of love God and the law of love for our neighbor. That's the law we're under. And that's, and that's the moral law as well today. We're not to, you know, murder or steal or do anything. That hasn't changed. You know, grace doesn't absolve that. That's still sin, right? You can turn back to 1 Corinthians. So that's what he's saying. He's saying circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Loving God and loving our neighbors, that's what matters to Christ. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? 
Do not be concerned about it, but if you can, be made free, rather use it. What is he talking about here? Well, a lot of this has to do with social class and status. Some people today may not be aware of this. So let me, let me explain what I mean by that, not being aware of this. So back in the first century, and even, you know, you might even say, I don't know, 175 years before that, there is social stratus. I think everybody understands what I mean, that rich, poor, and in between scales, levels like that, social stratus. What would happen is if you could find a very well-to-do master, someone that was uh, very financially well-to-do and one of good reputation, you could take and you could doulos, bond servant, put yourself under that master, basically assigning yourself to work for them. Why would anybody do that if you didn't owe a debt to that man? Because remember I told you social strata and, and social class that way? Status, I meant to say. Stature, status. What had happened if you served seven years or you were able to buy your freedom, when you would be released, your social status was la- will be last based on the it- circle of influence that you had with that master or the master's family. So you would now be able to attend certain social events that the master did and other people like that could that nobody else would have maybe knew you or invited you to before. Now, even though you are a free man and you no longer maybe are not rich like the master is, you will still be invited to those social gatherings. So at the time, many people would basically put themselves into servitude to get some type of a servant, you know, a a better class socially. And that's what was happening at that time. Well, Paul's going to talk about it. Pastor Paul's going to come back and say, look, don't make any man your master. You've been blood bought. Remember who is your real master, right? Don't be worried about the social status on this earth. Be more worried about who you are as a child of God. And that's kind of what he's going he's gonna to bring out, right? Let each one remain in the same calling which he was called, where you were called while a slave. Do not be concerned about it, because, but if you can be made free, rather use it. In other words, if you become free and you have that social status, what does that allow you to do? Preach the word and be a witness to those people that before you may not have been able to get in that door, right? Maybe you're God's undercover agent. He's brought you in there, right? Maybe you have a job that most people couldn't get, and you're in that, and you're an undercover agent in that job. He's got you, he's got you there to share the word of God, share the word of Christ like that, okay? For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Do you see that? Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ doulos. He's Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become the slave of men. Verse 23 isn't the first place we see this. If you look over back in chapter 6, right? Look at verse 20. He already told us, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, what are we to do? Glorify God. We were to glorify God, right? In your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So we learned two things. One, are we, what are we supposed to do? One, we're bought with a price and we're to glorify God. The second thing we're to do is what? Not become a slave of men. Not become a slave of men and their ideas that way. But Christ and him crucified. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. Now, concerning virgins. Now, we're going to go into verse 25. There's a lot of debate about this word for virgins here. Some believe it's speaking to men and women. And it can, by the way. In the Greek, it can be used both ways for men and women. When I look this up in a lexicon, and my understanding is this is speaking of women at this point, but it can be speaking of men that have never had, uh, never engaged in fornication, have never engaged in sexual morality, have, have st- are still living at home or kept that way. Um, it, it can speak to that. I do understand that. But, but you know how when you look up, uh, maybe even a modern dictionary, which you should never use for biblical application, but follow along. If you looked in the Webster's Dictionary, you know there's like, it could be used one, two, three, or four. Well, a lexicon is that for the word of God in the native language, which is Greek or Hebrew, okay? So in the Greek, there's one, two, three, or four. There's two for this word. Number one is a woman. Number two is of a man. This is predominantly used as number one as an example. So that's why I believe it's of men. There are many pastors that will disagree with me. You be Bereans. You look up the word in the lexicon and see what the Lord shows you. 
I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I, once again, we see Pastor Paul giving good old-fashioned spiritual common sense, give judgment to one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is a good because of the present distress. What was the present distress in Corinth? Chapter 5, sexual immorality. Chapter 6, suing brothers. Chapter 11, getting drunk at the wedding table, or excuse me, the communion table. Do you see? I mean, all kinds of sin going on. Sin city. That is the present distress in Corinth. That it's good for a man to remain as he is. Saying, hey, wait a minute. That gifting from God, if God has made you a celibate single, then, you know, and you don't want to change, then it's good for that. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loose. But he says, but hang on. That doesn't mean you run off and get divorced so that you can do all these things for the Lord. He says, no, because what's your first ministry? Your spouse, that's your first ministry. And, and as an under-shepherd, my first ministry is what? My first ministry is the flock. That's what I'm called to, right? But not everybody has that same calling. But my wife is also part of that flock, and my wife is my first ministry as well, Right? So what is this saying? Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loose from a wife? Don't seek to be bound, right? What's the whole point? We are all dedicated to Christ. We are all wed to Christ. He should be our point. He should be our, our influence. He should be our, our everything. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. In other words, if you burn for lust, like he talked about, or burn with passion in verse 9, he's saying that's not wrong. Get married. Better to get married than to live in sexual sin, right? So he already, he already said do that. He says, but if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Now, in this particular case, it is in the feminine. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, He's just saying that marriage can be complicated. And I think we all understand that. And not in a good or bad way, just it's, it can be complicated, right? To live selfless as God has called us to in marriage, it can be complicated, right? But it's worth it. It's worth it if that's what God's gifted us and called us to. But I would spare you. Why? Because he's going to tell you you're living in the last days, you're living in the last days. He was living in the last days. When did the last days begin? We're going to talk about that. There's a period of the last days, and we're in it. But when did it actually begin or start? He says, but I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Now, this is not, married men, listen to me in here, please. This is not telling you to ignore your wife. This is not telling you your wife is your first ministry. You're to love her selflessly, you know. You're to be completely, you know, unconditionally surrendered and helping. What he's saying is, is that you shouldn't be disobedient, right? That your marriage should line up, husband and wife, as an opportunity to glorify God. Once again, it should be a marriage in light of eternity, that's what he's talking about here. He's not saying, hey, ignore him. You know, you should be as though he had none. No, what he means is you should live all in for Christ. And oh, by the way, it should be both of you doing that. It should be both of you doing that. Those who weep as though they did not weep. What's he talking? He's going to go through now and say, look, you can have joy. You can have fun in this life. Absolutely. But time is short. And so you ought to have the right perspective that you're here to serve God. And we just, you know, he just went over the fact that we're not to serve masters of men. We're not to chase things of this world. But our eyes and our focus needs to be on Christ, right? That, that's, what, that's the context we've already been in. So keep it in that same context that he's saying, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. And that's really interesting because when you think about it, do, do you know that the world is passing away? Do you see uh, the things happening around the, 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 the axis and rotation of the earth slowing? I mean, just look at 1 John, or I'll read it to you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 17 said, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. What's he doing? He's redirecting us from the temporal to the eternal. 
He's telling us not to be so focused on the here and now, but to be focused on the eternity. And if our marriages are set up in a light of eternity, aren't we doing that very thing? We're glorifying God, whether single or married, if that's our focus. Now, it's important to understand, as I mentioned earlier, that these last days have been going on for centuries. Centuries, actually. When Peter addressed the crowd on the day the Holy Spirit birthed the church, he used the prophecy of the Old Testament. Turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verse 17. Look at Peter's words. He understood this. He understood this. He said, in the last days, God says, I will pour out on my spirit upon all people. I will pour out my spirit upon all people. What's Peter saying? Peter's saying exactly what he meant to say. He's saying that it was prophesied in the last days that God would pour out his spirit upon all peoples. They were just there for the day of Pentecost. The spirit of God was poured out on the people. Thousands got saved. Peter is connecting the two events, and he's saying, as it was prophesied here and today begins the last days. The last days. Because it says in the last days. What age are we in again? The church age. When does the church age end? When the rapture comes. Chapter 4 of Revelation and onward is after the rapture. Meotato in the Greek. After these things. It can mean nothing else. It's exactly what it means. It speaks of an age or an epoch. After these things. There's nothing else. It, it can't be misunderstood in the Greek. It's very clear. After these things, Revelation chapter 4. So if we've been technically living in the last days for 2,000 years of human history, why has God tarried so long? Good question, right? It's a fair question. Why has God tarried so long? Well, to get our answer, where are we going to look? In Scripture, right? We're going to look at what we've learned in Scripture. Look in the Old Testament. I want you to think about this, okay? Israel, look at them for an explanation. God was to come into the promised land. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 4, right? They're, they're going to be making their way over there. Joshua 1, they'll finally cross over, right? What's happening? God is not only dealing with that people, but Canaanites. Remember Og of Bashan, the giant? He came and defeated them. Shion, king, right of the Moabites, he defeated them, the people, the next generation did, showing them that they had no reason to fear like the first generation did when they bared false witness. Only who? Do you remember? Two people. Who? Caleb and Joshua were the only two that were faithful, that came back. And they're the only two that actually will get to inherit that promised land of that generation because they believed. And isn't it fitting for Joshua? What's that mean? Messiah with us or anointed one, Messiah? That he would be the one to enter, usher them into the promised land? Who's the one that enters, uh, you know, ushers us into heaven? Jesus Christ, Joshua? Isn't it just fitting that it would be that way? Once again, a picture for us, a typology. So we sit here and we see that, that before that, though, the Canaanites, they were worshiping gods like Molech, pagan gods. They were burning babies right at the, you know, right at the altar there. Horrible, murderous things they were doing. And they were doing it all because they thought it was okay. And God was saying, it's not okay. It's not right. And so what we learn here is that God was long-suffering and tarried, but eventually he brought Israel in to be a witness and to wipe those people out because they had gauged in sin. The point is what? Judgment comes. Judgment finally comes. So I ask you the question, did that happen to Israel? We need to know our Old Testament, right? You had two different invasions where we saw it with Israel specifically because they, right after Joshua, it won't be long, what, come, what book comes after Joshua? Judges, and what will happen in Judges? Everybody will do what's right in their own eyes, right? So what's going to happen? They're going to wean away. They're going to forget the word of God. Their children aren't going to be taught the word of God. You see how this is connecting the Deuteronomy 4 and also the opening verses of uh, 10 and on. But I command you, if you love him, keep his commandments and statutes. They forgot these commandments and statutes. They weren't practicing these, and they began to do what's right in their own eyes. Where are we today in America? Where are we today around the world? Well, we're going to talk a little bit about that. So at the end of the day, God uses this judgment. And he had Israel come through. But at this point, now they're the ones being judged. You had the Assyrian battle in the 700s AD, right? Where all the northern tribes get wiped out and scattered. You end up with a new people group. What are they called? The Samaritans, right? Because they intermarry 
with the Assyrians and the Jews, the 11 tribes that were part of that. That forms the Samaritan. Jesus will eventually talk about the Samaritans. Remember that? And then you end up with Judah in the southern, right? Not the northern. And what happens with them? In Babylonian invasion, 611 to 613, you have that happen with Judah. They, too, through being exiled because of what? Nebuchadnezzar comes in, loots the temple, and eventually destroys, right? A contemporary of that is Daniel, the prophet Daniel. Um, Amos was a contemporary of the Assyrian invasion with Isaiah. My point is, as we study the prophets, we begin to see how it all, it, it makes so much sense how it's all laid out that way for, us, for the Bible for us. Well, back to the point here is that as we look at this, God did the very same thing with Israel. But he gave them time to repent hundreds and hundreds of years. So what is God doing right now in America? What is God doing right now through the rest of the world? Why is Jesus tarrying? Because he's long-suffering and he loves us and he's giving the rest of the world, even though they mock him and laugh at him and spit on him, what are they doing? He's giving them time to repent and to get right with Jesus, to get right with God. Do you see it? It's the same thing over that happened then is happening now. And God's character, he's the ancient of days. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He works the same way. His character is a character of grace. But judgment did come to those foreign nations, and judgment's going to come to us. You and I won't be here for it, because 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us the wrath is not up to the church, right? We're not given unto wrath. We won't be here. We'll be looking down from the men's knees. But God is allowing ample time for them to repent and change, have a change of heart. But we need to have a word of caution here. God has delayed this a long time. It's been 2,000 years already. It's a long time he's been delayed. I don't believe that the end of the world is very far off now. When the disciples asked Jesus about the end of the age in Matthew 24, talking about his second coming, not the rapture, he shared several signs. Many of these signs uh, Jesus gave them that are fulfilled today. I, I'd encourage you to take notes. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 24. And we're going to, again, we're going to close with this. I know we're a little over today, but this is important. This is important. Because if I just told you that we're in the last days for 2,000 years, what makes you think that we're in the last of the last days? Because we are. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you what Jesus told us to be looking for. This is evidence that Jesus, our Messiah himself, gave us. Spoken from his very mouth to the disciples about this very question. And he gave us five different things. I'm only going to look at four. But if you turn to Matthew chapter 24, look at verse 9. You will be handed over to persecute, uh, excuse me, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. I'm going to talk to you about the data on this. Okay, I'm going to bring up some statistics and data. If you've got notes, I encourage you to take notes. Back in 2016, we saw an increase in Christian persecution. Fox News actually reported on it. They said that there was 90,000 Christians that were killed for their faith in 2016. And as many as 600 million were prevented from practicing their faith through either intimidation, forced conversations, bodily harm, or even worse, death. And just because the physical persecutions of Christians isn't happening in America uh, yet, doesn't mean the problem's not worldwide, okay? The imprisonment, torture, and even death of Christians continue to rise throughout the world at record levels. Jesus forewarned this would happen. Today, 2019, the last half of 2018 to 2019, 200,000 Christians are being martyred all around the world. 2016, it was 90,000 200,000 now. And he told us that Christian persecution. Now, I will say this. I'm, I'm actually writing a book about this, about um, the end times and specifically about Revelation and Israel and everything that's coming into that. Um, and one of the things that I write in that book specifically is that we have to be careful as believers not to look at any one of these signs individually and say, we're there. That's it. We're there. We must take the culmination of all these signs as Jesus says, because he says, this is the beginning of sorrows. So we have to take the culmination and we have to also look at the fervency at the rate that they're happening, right? 
Now, we could go into earthquakes. We can go into all that. And, oh, man, off the chart. And we're going to put, I'm actually going to put that in the book. We're going we're gonna to be having all that because you can't miss it. I mean, things that you haven't seen in thousands of years since Christ was physically manifest on earth, the frequency of these things that Christ said would happen. And again, Christian persecution is a great example of that. The second thing, Matthew chapter 24, verse 10. Many will turn away from the faith. Another sign that Jesus gave his disciples to signal the end of the world is at that time, many will turn from their faith. Pew Research just recently reported a rapid rise in what's called the nuns and not the people with the nuns like N-O-N-E-S, right? Not, not those with hats. Those in America who self-identify as not being affiliated with any religion or denomination. Let me give you the data on this. From 2007 to 2015, the number increased from 16 to 23%. Just in those years, from 2007 to 2015. Now, with self-identifying Christians, those that identify themselves as Christians, that dropped from 78% to 71% in just a few years. Now, while the number of Christians still predominate in America, the fact is this is an alarming trend because of the majority of nuns. Now, further in that data, guess what else we get? Because of this Pew Research, we can see exactly who make up the class of those that are turning away from the faith. Now, what do you think the largest age group or peer group or generation is the one that makes that up? That's right. It's our teens and our early college and career kids. Yeah. Because you know what happened? People stopped teaching the word of God to their children. They became biblically illiterate a generation or two ago. And that didn't get passed down. And because that didn't get passed down, they didn't teach their kids. It's gone and really becoming alarming because they've gone so far to say that we are literally two generations in America from ending up with where the UK, England is today. If you've gone over to England... What are most of the churches today? Many of them, if they're not historical sites and protected that way, what are they? Mosque or flats, apartments. Coming to a country near you. We have a job. We have a job to do. We were commanded and called in Matthew 28, 19 with the Great Commission to go in, therefore with the word of God. We are commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 4 to teach our children. That's our spiritual heritage. That's our pedigree. That's part of your pedigree. Even if you're not Jewish, you're, you were wed in, we're orphans. We were, we were knit in that way. That's our spiritual heritage. That's our God. And he says, teach your children, your grandchildren. Write it on your doorposts. Write it on your walls. Again, that's what inspired us to start this Christian academy here. Because we, you want to, they talk about pandemics and they're worried about pestilence and famine and all this. I'm worried about our kids. Our kids are growing up without knowing the word. It's an alarming rate. The next thing he said in Matthew 24, 12, the love of most will grow cold. Because the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Like, like the other sign we just said, Christians will be hated by all nations. This is one that's difficult to gauge. It's, it's not, uh, it's very subjective. It's not something that we can easily say, well, are you hot? Are you cold today? You know, it's, it's kind of hard. But we, I think we can all agree that we have seen or witnessed an increase in wickedness all around us or a sense of it. Even unbelievers know that something's going on. Even unbelievers in the world have looked and said, boy, this world's topsy-turvy. It's crazy. People are crazy. They don't even have good morals anymore. Even outside of Christianity, unbelievers have said something's wrong in this world today. They, 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 they don't know how to put their finger on it because they're spiritually blind, but we're not. We know exactly what's going on. And again, he's telling us that there will be an increase of wickedness. And I want you to just think about this for a minute. Look at where the morals of our nation is. Look at our views on ethics, morality, and sexuality. We're living in a new moral age, and it's becoming increasingly wicked day by day. 
And because of that, the love of even the Christians, some Christians have grown cold. I want you to think about the lifeless, empty churches that dot the landscape today. Jesus forewarned that this would be a sign of the coming end of the world. And the last one I'll leave you with here. The gospel will be preached in all nations. And I think this one's so cool. I love this. It's good news. I love the good news. Yes, the word of God's going to go forward. Matthew 24, 14. And this is the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So in spite of rising persecution, Christianity's proven to be resilient as Jesus continues to build his church. Matthew 16, 18, we read that. Missionaries are being sent to nations close and afar, and they're to provide a witness to all nations all around the world. The International Mission Board, some of you may have heard of them, the International Mission Board has identified, and this is what I think is so cool, 3,203 remaining people groups in the world that have not yet heard the gospel. We know who they are and we know where they live. Unlike any other time in history, we never had that kind of data that we know who they are. And it just so happens that we keep and others keep sending missionaries out. And guess where we send them to? To the 3,203 different places that they have not, or people groups have not heard of Jesus in all of the world. This must be before the end of the world. And I think it's quickly becoming a reality today. That's why I say to you, this isn't just the last days. This is the last days of the last days. We have prophecies that we read in Amos. As we see, 1948, Israel became a nation again, gathered all the tribes back. Never happened. Go back and study your history. Never happened with any other people group in all of history, ever. Had a people group been removed from their land, scattered individually, and then brought back together as one. Because remember, Israel was separated after Solomon, Rehoboam. Remember that? Separated into two different groups. I just, I just want to, we've never seen that in history. We saw it in 1948. And now here we are today. So, as it said there in verse 31, the form of this world is passing away a lot faster than many people think. Just because 2,000 years have passed away um, since Jesus' prophecy, we can't allow it to lull us into a sense of complacency. Jesus told us that although his coming would be like a thief in the night, that's Matthew 24, 43. If it gets any worse, I have a question for you. Will the rapture actually be a thief in the night? If it gets much worse, you're going to be going what? Are you, are you here? Are you coming? You're going to be looking up all the time, right? It isn't going to be a thief. You ain't going to be surprised by it, right? I'm telling you, we're there. We're right there. Now, I don't know the day or the hour or how that's going to work, but I know there's nothing prophetically that needs to be fulfilled any longer in Scripture before the rapture. I know that. And I know things can't get much worse because then even the unbelievers are going to be looking up going, he coming yet? I mean, some, you know what I mean? Everybody's going to be looking up. So, I mean, you know what I mean? We're in the last of the last days. So we need to get up. We need to be about our Father's business. I hope this is sobering for all of us here as we sit and understand the days we're living in and what it means for you and I. I think there's two generations that would have probably been the greatest to be alive. The time that Jesus Christ is physically manifested on the earth and right now. Because I believe my generation is going to be the generation that doesn't pass away before they see the coming of Messiah as we're caught up in the air in the rapture. I believe that with everything that I am as I stand before you. Let's stand and pray. God, thank you for your holy word. Thank you, Lord, that we are not stumbling or walking in the dark. God, I thank you that you have provided a way that we could all know and hear and follow. Lord Jesus, I pray for the paramedics and the emergency responders that just went by us, Lord, as they rush to a, a scene, whether it's an accident, a home, or somewhere, Lord, where someone's not well or hurt. God, I pray you go before them right now. I pray, God, that there would be one of yours on that vehicle that will have an opportunity to one more time share your gospel.
And Lord, that person there would respond and hear and receive Jesus Christ as his Lord or her Lord and Savior today. And Lord, I pray for the healing and safety of all those involved. God, I thank you for our time today as we are to be sober-minded for the days we're living. Lord, I do look up and we look up. Our redemption draws nigh. Lord, let us be about your business, Lord, and everywhere you send us, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. God, I pray that you send us out in our marriages, that a marriage would last eternity. God, bless the marriages here. Bless the singles. Bless the widows. Each one of us has a gift from you by God, Lord. Let us fulfill our calling and election. Lord, it is getting far worse than we ever thought, even right now. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come, Maranatha, Lord. Maranatha. But Lord, if you tarry, we know it's because you are so loving and long-suffering. Lord, I pray you bless this church. I pray you bless this academy and, Lord, the body of Christ here and the children that will enter it. I pray, God, that this next generation, God, will lead so many into your kingdom. That, Lord, all this data will be for nothing because these kids will go out armed with the word of God and they will be able to give a defense for why they believe what they believe as you've commanded in your word. Lord, bless these children and those that you will add. We pray for this next generation, Lord. And we ask this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. I love you all. God bless you all.